guest today is an old friend, Thomas Larier. I've known uh, Thomas for at least two decades, and I have the vivid memory of giving a workshop. I think it might have been at the IMF where he was one of the senior lawyers, and I was going along articulating what I thought was a brilliant solution to save the world, and he very politely at the end of my long diatribe said, you know, there's just a fundamental flaw in here that your solution is inconsistent with basic civil procedure rules. And I, I unfortunately never really paid much attention to civil procedure in law school. And he was right. So I learned my lesson. Always ask Thomas when you come up with some crazy solution. But he has moved on from the IMF and is in private practice now and has been one of the most eminent voices during the COVID crisis in thinking about global solutions. So Mark and I are absolutely thrilled to have him and I suspect our students will be learning a lot. So welcome, Thomas. Thank you, Mitsu. Thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate the kind introduction and the opportunity to be part of today's podcast. Well, we, we are so thrilled. So. I want to start, before we get into things like the effect of the pandemic, what its impact on Africa is, the common framework, DSSI, SDRs, we're not going to get to all of those topics, but I want to start with pre-pandemic in a sense, and a couple of really interesting articles that you wrote for FT Alphaville and especially a 2019 piece that you wrote articulating what I thought was an extremely innovative and clever solution to protect Venezuela's assets until things could somewhat normalize. Now, Venezuela has been out of the sovereign debt news in part because I mean, I don't know, maybe just people have just completely given up, but I'm hoping you can talk about that solution and, and whether or not you think it's still viable. And uh, then maybe we can go on to uh, the restriction, the things that actually have been done, like the restrictions on trading in Venezuelan bonds and whether they have worked and what we should do about Venezuela now. Sure. So I, I've been working on Venezuela for oh, probably 20 years because I used to cover Venezuela when I was in the IMF um, and covered the complicated legal relationship between Venezuela and, and the IMF and the rest of the international community. Um, and so I, I, I still follow the, the, the country's debt dynamics. Um, I have to say that they, they haven't improved over the time period that I, I've been following. And I don't think we're anywhere near to a solution yet. Um, there are some political and intergovernmental dynamics which um, are getting in the way of being able to move forward. Perhaps we can talk about those later. Um, but I, I am aware that no matter what solution that we come up with, it, it needs some innovation because Venezuela is, is an extremely complicated case. Um, just looking at the external debt, there is 150 billion to 200 billion 
uh, in external debt, um, much of it, public external debt, I should say, um, much of it is in arrears um, and tremendous domestic needs. Um, the, the, the country's economy has been run to the ground. Um, there's going to be a tremendous pull on the need for financing and resources to go in, into um, stabilizing the domestic economy. And those um, resources will be um, in competition with the resources that the creditors would also be seeking. Um, the, the creditor base is also extremely varied. And so th this is going to be a, a, an extremely complicated case. So a couple of years ago, I, I started thinking about some ideas to help cut through the complication. Um, so you, too, you, you had characterized my proposal as being to protect um, Venezuela's assets. So it, it wasn't quite that. So what, what I had proposed was a system whereby one could create an international trust that will bring in some of the assets from Venezuela that we know have been misappropriated. They've been whittled away into private hands, into offshore accounts. There have been um, some estimates that may be up to 200 billion of such assets. But even if it's only 100 billion, and even if only half of that is recovered, that is still a significant sum that could be brought back into the um, pot in order to be shared between the, the domestic economy needs and to be shared to, with, with creditors. Um, of course, if you start to think about something like that, then there are questions around, well, how do you safeguard that pot of resources from attack by other potential creditors? And the idea that I had articulated is that you could establish the pot within a trust um, of, of the International Monetary Fund, which has cast iron immunities, and, and the immunities of the IMF could protect that trust. Um, the IMF wouldn't be distributing resources under the trust because it could raise some questions about its own neutrality, but it could at least establish the trust um, and the framework could then be built around distribution. So that, that was the idea. Um, it, it's not ripe for implementation now. Um, it, it wasn't ripe when I proposed it, but I, I wanted to propose it as an example of something that was innovative, um, that understood the conflicts between the demands of the domestic economy and, and the demands of the creditors, and that recognized that we needed a international law-based solution if, if we're able to make any real material progress um, with the Venezuela debt restructuring at the right time. So, so Thomas, can I ask a question related to part of the proposal that I think you don't touch on in the FT piece. So my way of thinking about this maybe oversimplistically is just that this is sort of the unusual sovereign debt restructuring scenario where it's kind of like a bankruptcy with a lot of fraudulent transfer litigation or you know mm -hmm. where one of the main assets of the estate is the ability to try to claw back funds from people who've been given preferential treatment pre-bankruptcy. And I'm, who's going to view that post-restructuring as an asset? It seems to me that the whatever government we imagine is in charge of Venezuela, I mean, most of these people, at least to my mind, are like Maduro cronies or mm -hmm. in the military or so, forth, or so forth. As a political matter, it seems like no one in any Venezuelan government we can imagine is going to really want to treat this as an asset and pursue it vigorously. And so you'd almost, wouldn't you almost have to 
kind of transfer the asset to creditors? Do something that would be quite, you don't quite talk about this, but I'm wondering about the mechanism to really make it a feasible to monetize this and what that mm -hmm. would entail. Those are, are, are two great questions. And so let me start with the first. You're absolutely correct. This is somewhat analogous to a corporate bankruptcy um, framework where there are assets that have been, if you like, taken outside of the bankruptcy estate, and then there are rules for clawing back some of those assets. And these may well not be based upon preferences as such in terms of payment, but it could be due to illegal activity. Um, and that, that's the sort of the, the trigger um, in, in my proposal. Um, in, in, incidentally, there, there are other types of assets that Venezuela has as well, including oil assets in, in the ground. I mean, and those, it, it's easier for us to think about how to monetize them, even though the current debt sustainability analysis frameworks don't, um, in my view, bring even those types of assets into account appropriately. But I, I'm going beyond the oil in the ground and thinking about assets that could be clawed back into the estate. So you are right about the corporate bankruptcy analogy. Um, you raise an interesting point about, well, who would argue for this on the Venezuela side? So there, there, there is an implicit assumption in my article um, that there's been a change in government or at least a change in perspective, um, because you are correct. The, the officials and their friends who have been involved in these asset transfers are not going to suddenly turn around and say, OK, let me give it back to you. So there, there, there is an implicit assumption. I, I didn't want to say it explicitly since I didn't want to get into um, the, 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 the a debate about um, regime change. But there is an implicit assumption in my analysis that at the very least, the government in Venezuela at the relevant time is prepared to look backwards and to go after certain people who may currently feel that they are protected through um, political relationships. So, so, so yes, that, that, that is a, a practical condition of anything like this working. Thomas, can we talk about in, uh, in part about what the U.S. Uh, did, the, some of the steps that the Trump administration took that, as best I understand, were fairly radical and different than have been done in prior such situations. So in particular, I'm thinking about the restriction on the trading of Venezuelan debt securities. Sure, that, that, that's an interesting example. So just to connect that a little bit to my, to my other article, as I said, I didn't explicitly in the other article talk about regime change because I didn't want to associate myself with the activity of the Trump administration, who have been very aggressive in using sanctions and other diplomatic um, and legal and political tools to try to bring about a, a regime change in, in Venezuela. Um, frankly, it's not clear to me that there will be a full-scale regime change. Um, Maduro doesn't seem to be going anywhere, and, and there's probably more chance of some moderation in, in, in that re regime. But the the approach of using sanctions and other tools to bring about regime change essentially failed, in my view. And, and that use of sanctions became very overblown, um, including in one instance where there was, in effect, a trading ban on secondary um, transactions with regard to both the 
um, bonds of the Republic and also the bonds of the state-owned oil company. And that trading ban was very hard to explain from a legal or policy basis. Um, In the end, some government officials in the US were saying, well, it was intended to squeeze um, Maduro's um, affiliates, but one one could do that in a very targeted way by putting the assets of those um, identified affiliates onto so-called specially designated lists. So you can't deal with those individuals and their assets are frozen. So they didn't quite make sense to us. Um, but it, it, it was one example of, I think, uh, an overly aggressive use of sanctions without real um, deep thought as to whether they would work, and they haven't, and also what would be the implications of the use of those sanctions um, for the, the market and perhaps for future debt restructurings as well, because now there's a concern that your trading in government bonds could be affected by an overboard use of US sanctions. So the market is going to internalize that risk somewhere. Um, we don't know quite where it ends up, but it is certainly internalized. So Tell yes, uh, it was a bad, a bad move in my view. So can I ask a, just less about the substance now and um, about what happens you know, when a gov- like powerful government like the US does something half-assed like the Trump <laughs> administration did, uh, what happens at international organizations like the fund? Like, do they send a memo uh, to the State Department or the Treasury Department and say, don't do this dumbass thing, it's going to have bad consequences? Or does the U.S., um, does, does sort of the head of the IMF, uh, I, don't, I don't remember whether Christine Lagarde was um, still uh, Yes in charge, but do they go to their US compatriots and say, you have no evidence that this will work, we don't think is gonna have long-term beneficial effects. My understanding is uh, the US has changed regimes and uh, this this trading ban is still there and nobody's paying any attention to uh, potential negative effects. It's as if the idiocy continues. So a couple of thoughts there. First of all, you're asking about what is the response of the fund and other international organizations. Um, it, it depends on the issue. Um, I, I, I don't think the fund was um, aggressive in pushing back on this particular issue because um, it was understood that it, it was part of a push for regime change. And there were a number of powerful members of the IMF, at least from, from what I could see, that were aligned with that effort. Um, so the, the IMF would take the view that well, this is something outside the IMF's jurisdictional and functional purview. If, if a, a government such as the US and other governments as well that followed suit with some other types of sanctions wanted to do it, then, then that's something the fund wouldn't take a view on. Um, but interestingly, um, the, the, the fund does have a role associated with what circumstances it will deal with a government. And because of some of the actions taken against Maduro and the US support, for an alternative administration, the fund did conduct a poll among its members to see what the the view of its membership was as to which government it recognized. And that poll became indeterminate in the result. And so as a result of that, the fund hasn't been dealing with any government um, in in Venezuela. And it also means that no government um, is able to exercise the 
the rights and obligations of, of the Venezuela state within the IMF. So the IMF is a somewhat of, of a limbo position. Um, you raise a point about, well, there's a new US government, so shouldn't things change? I, I think part of the challenge has been is that once you put on a measure like a sanction, even for um, idiosyncratic or, or, or idiotic reasons, it's actually quite hard to take it off um, because um, politically you, you want to be seen to be de-escalating in circumstance where the subject of the sanctions is also making some um, de-escalating moves. So I, I, I do understand that there are some discussions between the US and Venezuela and others around how to de-escalate in parallel, um, but it, it's, it's understandably hard um, for the US government to de-escalate in a way that appears unilateral. Um, so I, I believe they understand the arguments that I and others have made about the trading ban. Uh, but now the question is how from a practical and a political and a diplomatic um, fashion do you de-escalate uh, without being seen to be foolish? If I can kind of ask one more question linking these two FT Alphaville pieces before we we move into break. Um, the It seems to me that at some point, and now I'm thinking not about the trading ban, uh, directly, but about some of the other aspects of U.S. sanctions that are uh, preventing creditors from attaching or executing on Venezuelan assets, not not simply the, the Crystal X litigation and the shares of the Pedavesa U.S. parent company, but also the efforts to, to go after the collateral on the Pedavesa 2020 bonds. It seems to me at some point, the thinking in Treasury and throughout the U.S. government may have shifted to viewing some of these sanctions as sort of intercreditor equity tools, which does seem to me to have a link to your uh, IMF trust proposal in the sense that kind of as I understand it, if we imagined um, efforts to monetize claims the Venezuelan government might have against people who had looted it previously, we would want to protect those assets and so that they could be distributed equitably to creditors. And, and I think that logic at some point came to animate some part of the U.S. sanctions. Mm -hmm. Does that logic have a broader applicability in sovereign debt cases? Like, Should the U.S. more routinely think about for instance, immunizing assets, not for extended periods of time necessarily, and not to seriously tip the scales between governments and their creditors, but so that we don't have a situation where, we, as we're going to potentially have with the Crystal X case, where you have one creditor receive a really disproportionate kind of payment, even though it ought to be paid pro rata with a bunch of other creditors. That, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't like the Iraq president. I, I know Me Too is, is quite fond of it. The Iraq president that involved the UN Security Council's um, resolution that essentially immunized Iraq's assets, um, again, partly animated by the idea, well, of, of preserving the assets for a, a distribution that would respect in, in intercreditor concerns. I, I don't like the use of those tools, nor the use of sanctions. I think that these are extremely blunt tools to deal with a problem which I think we have other means of addressing. 
Um, at the end of the day, in Venezuela's situation, I, I, I can't imagine a resolution where all the claims, whether they be arbitral awards, whether there'll be court judgments, whether there will be bonds, whether there'll be other forms of financing, will be treated as due and payable. Um, they will all be essentially accelerated on paper. And, and then there will be a, a restructuring on that basis. Um, and, and we have practices for how you consider intercreditor equity in those circumstances. Not everyone will comply. Um, and there, there will be some judgment creditors who feel that they have accelerated rights um, in order to gain recovery. But I, I, I think the system um, can figure out solutions that um, are much more sophisticated than the very blunt instruments used in Iraq and the very blunt use of sanctions um, that, that we're seeing in, in the current Venezuela context. That was um, so helpful and so clear. Thank you. I think we'll take a short break now and then move to our next set of topics, which will be uh, even more contemporary, although it's hard not to think of Venezuela as contemporary and ongoing and an unmitigated disaster. So let's take a break. Thomas, if we can shift gears to I guess uh, we've been talking about one type of coordination mechanism in a way uh, and talk about another that maybe has even more contemporary relevance. I wanted to ask about the G20's common framework. Um, Mitu and I have talked about it a bunch on the podcast and we've talked about it with a bunch of, of different folks. Um, I kind of want to ask a, a general question with a bit of subtext. The general question is whether you can tell us what your sense of the common framework is and its importance, maybe to the extent you can uh, channel what you think the private sector perspective, the private investor perspective might be, that would be helpful. The other, the, the subtext is, so one of the things that I think is most important as a, an open question about the common framework is the extent to which it will change the dynamic between the official and the private sector in terms of granting debt relief to, to countries that, that um, request treatment under the framework. And I'm wondering whether you think private sector investors ought to view the framework as sort of a sea change, something that will um, shift debt restructuring dynamics significantly? Those are great questions. Um, so the common framework is, is fascinating to me, um, but that you need to sort of step back a little bit in, in order to put it in context, I think. So one of the initiatives that the G20 and the international community um, pushed when the COVID pand pandemic was at its height uh, was the so-called debt service suspension initiative. And this was an initiative that provided for debt services suspension for low-income countries, uh, about 73 um, low-income countries um, that were not necessarily over-indebted, but they had liquidity challenges, and it was thought that it was better to let them use the liquidity that they, that they had for um, dealing with the social and health costs of COVID rather than to be servicing their external debt. So that was a very specialized and um, specific um, initiative. But, but there was an idea that that wasn't enough. Um, so the common framework was also established, which 
provides for a much more robust system for potentially restructuring unsustainable debt situations um, for that same set of low-income countries. Um, the interesting thing about the common framework is that most of it is not new. It's really building on a system that the Paris Club, which is a club of OECD, essentially the, the wealthy countries in, in the world, a club that they have joined and participated in, and a club that they have used in order to deal with um, sovereign debtors from, over the last um, 70 years or so. So that club has its own rules and approaches for dealing with debt restructuring. And they, that club wanted to extend those rules to other non-Paris club official bilateral creditors, particularly China and India and Saudi Arabia, who over the last few years have become in the ascendancy, if you like, in, in providing financing to uh, low-income countries. So that, that is the, the most important point I would make about the common framework. It's essentially a way of trying to extend the Paris Club's framework to a broader set of countries. Um, so it, it's a, a geopolitical play at its base um, to extend not just the, the practices of the Paris Club, but also to extend their leverage um, to a broader set of accredited countries and then for have that broader set of accredited countries engage with um, sovereign debtors. Is this going to change the dynamic with the private creditors? We don't know that yet. <laughs> there have been three countries, Chad, Ethiopia, um, and Zambia, who have indicated that they wish to use the common framework. Um, one of the conditions of the common framework is that you have to have an IMF financing program. Um, so Zambia hasn't reached that condition yet. So their request is conditional on that. But even with Chad and Ethiopia, um, we really don't know how, not even how would the private sector respond, but we still don't even know how necessarily would the official um, bilateral creditors, the other governments respond in the, in, in the common framework situation. Um, so for example, Ethiopia, there's been no official bilateral creditor committee formed yet. And the idea that we're hearing is that China is reluctant to participate um, so there's still major questions about the participation of the official bilateral creditors, let alone the participation of, of private creditors. So Thomas, if, if we were to think of the common framework slash DSSI, but primarily the common framework as having been touted as a wonderful, creative solution to an immediate problem, would it be reasonable for us to say that maybe it'll work, but it certainly has not provided an immediate solution? Is that too much of a criticism? Um, no, I don't think it's too much of a criticism. I, I would even go further. Um, as, as you explained in, in the introduction, I, I worked in the official sector, I worked at the IMF, and I've seen some of the political jockeying that takes place in that forum. Um, so one, one of my interpretations of the DSSI and the Common Framework is that it's really driven by competition among those creditor countries, competition for influence over low-income countries. And my biggest concern about the DSSI and the Common Framework is because of this political agenda that at least I perceive behind it, that they, those initiatives could actually be used to push 
these low-income countries into a greater dependency on the official bilateral creditors who are in competition for influence over them. So I, 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 I will go further than what you're saying. I, not only would I say, I don't know whether it's going to work, but I'm also concerned about some of the geopolitical um, dynamics that are animating um, the, the, the drive for um, these frameworks at this time. So can you say more about this risk of dependency? Am I, am I right to think that sort of the underlying dynamic there that you're concerned about is that if we assume the common framework will result in greater pressure for private sector participation in debt restructurings, even in situations where you know, private investors would prefer not to participate, that that's going to dry up future access to, to capital markets for these countries? Is that the dynamic you're positing? That, that is certainly part of the dynamic. So a, a couple of things to unpack that. So I, I will be the first to concede that at this time, when you're in a crisis containment phase, no one is quite sure how long the COVID pandemic will last and how the economies will recover thereafter. You, you, you need some crisis containment measures. And the most important crisis containment measure is highly concessional financing. And that highly concessional financing can only come from the multilaterals. You can't ask the uh, private creditors who have their own investors to provide highly concessional financing. So it's the multilaterals who are funded by the official bilaterals, i.e. by the other governments, who have to play that role. They have to step up in, in that way. But that needs to be a short-term measure because ultimately, and we've learned this from over 50 years of history, the development objectives of these low-income countries can't be met by dependency on multilateral financing or met by dependency on official bilateral financing. They need the scale and the independence of private capital markets in order to, to provide the financing they need to develop. And so you, you don't want to, in addressing the short-term exigencies of a crisis, to also do it in a way that prevents a longer-term recovery of these countries, uh, which are, is dependent on either gaining market access or maintaining market access for the medium and longer term. So you know, that's one of my main fundamental concerns. And it, it, it depends upon the time frame that you're looking at. Yes, they need additional multilateral financing now on concessional terms, but that shouldn't displace their longer term needs for private capital markets. It seems like just trying to put my, my skeptics hat on for a second, it seems like we're talking about situations where, yes, the country has asked to participate in the framework, but there has been, I would imagine, a, an IMF determination that a restructuring is necessary for to restore debt sustainability. And you know, on top of that, this principle of comparability of treatment that calls for private sector participation uh, on equivalent terms to, to the official sector, leaving aside the sort of what would seem to be vast amounts of liquidity in the system right now, even if, if we were to posit you know, some reduction in global liquidity, why would a country 
suffer under those circumstances? Why, why would investors view that as a sort of a long-term signal of reduced creditworthiness? So you, you mentioned something interesting in your question. You say um, leaving aside um, the, the increased liquidity at the moment. I, I'm not sure one, one can leave that aside. I think that's an important factor. Um, so there, there is high levels of, of liquidity. Um, actually, it's due to the activities of the, uh, the advanced economies. The central banks have, have been printing money. There have been huge um, fiscal stimulus. So there, there, there is a lot of liquidity in the system. And so there are opportunities for um, these governments that need liquidity to refinance. That's what I've been doing. I, I refinanced my mortgage. I, I, I didn't go in default. I refinanced. Um, and so I think that is a factor that one can't leave aside as, as such. Um, I think it is important to use the market available tools um, where those tools are available. Um, now, you make another point about, well, perhaps the IMF has already determined that the debt is unsustainable, therefore the, the, the governments need to restructure. Um, yes, but the way you restructure is, is important. Um, you know, there, there are multiple equilibria in, in solving debt restructurings. Um, there, there, there's a way of restructuring um, today where you can um, depress growth, um, you can depress new financing and, and raise the cost of financing, and, and then the country will be um, in, in a low-performing, um, suboptimal state for a long time, and then it almost becomes self um, determining, oh, yes, the, the, the debt it, it was unsustainable. Look how poorly that the government is doing 10 years later. Um, but there are also more positive equilibria where you can restructure in a way that um, optimizes new financing, um, that optimizes economic growth, um, that takes all parties to a higher e e equilibrium. And, and so, you know, part of my concern is that we shouldn't lose sight or the, the, the economic arguments around multiple equilibria and not just be so focused on, oh, there's a need for debt restructuring, there's a need for debt restructuring today without thinking about the longer term effects of, of debt restructuring, um, not just for the creditors, but in, for the governments, these, the country's interests. They, they are often better served by debt restructurings that are done in the way that are, are market friendly. So Thomas, in, in the vein of talking about multiple equilibria, I'm particularly interested in um, an aspect of this common framework, well, actually multiple aspects, but one aspect that I think you had touched on in your superb webinar that puzzled me uh, and seems to push us towards an equilibrium that we don't really know uh, where it will be, a positive or a negative one. And that um, is the, the choice to let local law debt seemingly escape the mandate of comparability of treatment. Or maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but I, I remember there was a special treatment of local law debt, or maybe it was local currency debt. And I didn't understand where it was coming from or why you would favor one asset class over another asset class. I mean, I think of investors as investing in, do I buy local bonds versus foreign bonds? Uh, it's just an economic calculation about which one pays me a better rate of return and which one has more risks. Mm -hmm. Why would you favor one over the other? 
So it, it's some, there some deep theory. Uh, no, I don't think there is much deep theory. There, there is a bit which I, I will get to, but it, it shows you the inconsistencies in these frameworks that are done for, in part, political reasons. So in, in the DSSI, it's explicit that local law debt, local currency debt is excluded from the debt service suspension initiative. Um, and actually, what, what, what has happened is that many countries have now just bulked up on the domestic debt. Um, and and the, the domestic creditors uh, are, have been able to provide that financing in the assurance that there's no expectation that they will provide a liquidity relief under the DSSI. Where there is a little bit of uncertainty is under the common framework itself, um, because the common framework is working off the IMF's debt sustainability analysis, and the IMF's debt sustainability analysis does not itself exclude local debt. Um, to the extent the IMF says a country has a fiscal uh, problem, then that fiscal problem um, it pertains both to its payment of, of local debt as it does to external debt. So there, there is always a chance that the IMF will call for a broader debt restructuring that would in, include some um, domestic debt. Um, so then the two final points I will make is that there, there has been a long-standing argument in sovereign debt restructurings that one needs to be careful about restructuring domestic debt to the extent that the debt is held by the local banking system. Um, the, the, the view being there is that if the local banking system is impaired, then growth overall will be impaired in the economy and everyone will be worse off, including the external creditors. So there are circumstances where external creditors have agreed to, um, to some largesse uh, with regard to the domestic debt. So, so, th so that does apply. And then the other thing I would note finally is that technically the Paris Club's comparability of, of treatment um, framework, which you alluded to, which is basically the framework that says to the debtor that you've got to provide um, comparable treatment in terms of relief um, with regard to other um, official bilateral and private creditors. That framework is technically just focused on external debt because that, that's where the Paris Club are. They, these are external creditors and they only focus on, on themselves and creditors like them. And so there, there, there is a, a, a gap in, in the in the system with regard to the, the domestic debt, and and it does show up um, again in the common framework. Can we shift gears um, just a little bit as we go towards the end here? Actually, um, more significantly, I guess, although it still relates to the common framework. But I know that one of the the regions that you have been focused on, and certainly that was the focus of the webinar that that me too and I watched is um, countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit in other contexts about debt restructurings globally, but also uh, focusing focusing on, on some countries in Africa. But I'm wondering, um, given where we are in COVID, which I don't know where that is, but it isn't good. Um, I think it, it's, the rise of the Delta variant and the, the maybe the increased interest of rich countries in further devoting vaccines to their own citizens rather than distributing mm -hmm. them globally. Are, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? I mean, I know some, even some of the, 
very, very large economies like Nigeria are not in what would seem to be a good position. Are you an optimist, a pessimist? What, what lies ahead? Oh, I, I don't know yet. You know, I, I have been surprised by COVID. Uh, but by, by the way, for the for viewers and listeners who don't know, I, I'm from Ghana. So I, I, I spend a lot of time following uh, what, what, what's happening on, in Ghana and other countries on the African continent. I, I've been frankly surprised. They seem to be relatively resilient. Um, the predictions at the beginning of the pandemic that there was going to be wide scale um, de death and economic dislocation has not panned out uh, as badly as, as people thought. Um, so that there is some hidden resilience in those communities, in those economies that, that is certainly surprising me and surprising others. So I, that, that's the first point I'd make. I, I, I certainly don't know, and, and I, I don't think the predictions have, have um, proven to be true yet. So we may well have more surprises. Um, the other point I would make is that you know, Africa is a big continent of 55 countries, and mm. one needs to be careful not to overly generalize. So situations such as Sudan um, and Eritrea um, and, and Zimbabwe, who haven't had the benefit of HIPAA debt relief and have you know, clearly major unsustainable debts, that's a very different situation um, from countries such as Ghana and Nigeria that who have market access. Uh, for, for example. And so what one can't overgeneralize. Um, so certainly there will be some high debt distress situations that we will need to re resolve. Some of them that we, we knew about before. You know, Zambia didn't become in debt distress as a result of, of COVID. Um, it, it had a pre-existing condition and it's that pre-existing condition which is causing um, its, its economic troubles. So there will be need for um, restructurings in, in certain country cases, but I don't want to overgeneralize um, that there, there are um, paths for many African countries to, to recover. And I would emphasize again, they, they have more um, capacity to follow those paths if they have the option of market access for the countries um, that are proximate to that type of financing arrangement. Well, Thomas, thank you so very much for giving us your time. This has been wonderful and we've learned a lot, but hopefully this is just the first of many visits you make to our podcast. Sure, I'd be happy to come at, at any time.